All right, so I am doing our first actual episode. And after a lot of the experiences lately with life and relationships, um, you know, just in general, I wanted to talk more about men's rights. And it's uh, an issue that I've had with a, an atheist fella named Aaron Raw and a few of his cohorts on YouTube. Um, you know, he's a feminist, and he says that anybody who isn't a feminist is against uh, women, basically. And this is, you know, paraphrased from a lot of his uh, videos and a lot of his interviews about this, and he's probably made, you know, at least 20 videos regarding the subject, or at least he's had uh, 20 public conversations about this. And we got into it because of definitions and him playing, you know, on these definitions and using um, this appeal to authority for things like that in our topics on atheism and creationism. And so when I was like, well, you know, looking at his words to me, it looked as if though he was arguing with somebody that wasn't me. And I wanted to get a little bit more information. And so I looked him up and, uh, you know, we got into these um, conversations about definitions and about meanings of words and history of uh, language. And and I was like, well, that, that's awfully strange, you know, because these are words we haven't even brought into the conversation. These are words that, you know, are random and, and out of place. And I looked him up and I looked into his uh, other arguments, you know, on other subjects. And one of them was feminism. It's a big thing for him. And uh, this is the same kind of thing, this word salad that often gets played by him. You know, this... Uh, uh, well, this this meaning means this, and there's no other meaning, and that's how you've got to define it. And, you know, the authority is the dictionary. And so then we brought up the term religion, which, you know, the Oxford Advanced Learner Dictionary says atheism and agnosticism is religion. And he says, no, no, it can't be, because this is what atheism is. And then he uses a definition for atheism. But the dictionary, his authority that he appeals to, says differently, says that atheism, agnosticism, Buddhism, Christianity, uh, Islam are all forms of religion. Well, that's that's not appropriate for him. So anyway, this is uh, this has brought up more things regarding feminism and men's rights and the way society works today regarding these things and, uh, you know, and how men are treated in society uh, in, in this new era. So that's what we're going to talk about. Be right back. Actually, I thought that we would stop recording because it got to the end of the three minutes and it uh, continued on. So like I said, this is my first uh, video here, or my first uh, broadcast on uh, um, Anchor. And Anchor is a great platform. I like their mixing that you can do at the end. You can put in background music. You can, you know, make a lot of edits and... Uh, make professional media, really, professional um, radio broadcast or podcast. And I'm, I'm really into it. So we're going to see how it works out. Uh, I'm going to start posting these at disruptarian.com. So if you're interested, uh, take a peek at us at disruptarian.com. And I'm also doing Steemit. Uh, Steemit is a great platform for video blogging for me and for, for uh, text blogging as well for writing articles. So I've got a couple of uh, different accounts on Steemit, and you can find information for that at 
veracitylife.com. Um, look up the meaning of veracity if you're not aware of it. It basically means truth or transparency. And I like to get to the bottom of all of that. So I, uh, as a uh, person who is a theist, I don't know that I would consider myself a Christian because I don't think most of Christendom would consider me as a Christian. Um, and I know that if I was in the 4th or 5th or 6th century AD, I would be probably burned at the stake for heresy for my beliefs. And, you know, long before I even got acquainted with the Gnostics and Gnosis, you know, these uh, ancient terms for uh, gaining knowledge or seeking knowledge, and these uh, Christian sects, which uh, the Catholic Church would call heretics, you know, I felt very similar to what they believe and did not feel like I belonged in any Christian religion. So I never joined another church after I left what I was raised with, which was Mormonism. Um, I left that as a teenager, officially got my name removed from the Mormon records when I was 19 and never really had a calling. I didn't do my priesthood things. I never really uh, bought into it at all in any point of my life. Uh, my brother got his priesthood. I think he was in the Aaronic priesthood. Um, despite not being a proper Mormon, you know, with all of the uh, requirements met, but, you know, he bought into it and, you know, really got um, acquainted with the Mormon church. And my father and mother were uh, baptized and then married in the Mormon temple. So, you know, that, that was later in life. That was in my dad's um, uh, late 50s, right before he died, that he got married to my mother in the temple. So that was the religion I was raised in. After I left that, I was baptized in the river, um, up in the, the uh, Provo River, uh, in Provo Canyon. So it was a, kind of an outdoorsy thing by a Pentecostal minister named Gene Short, whose church I was not a member either, but I, you know, had an acquaintance with him and wanted to um, do my duty to uh, be baptized and show my loyalty to the faith that I had in Christ. And um, just to make that provisional um, effort, you know, and to announce as, you know, a person that wanted to be accountable that I was a Christian and that I felt uh, this was a necessary step in my faith. But I never joined his church. Later, I would get married to my wife. Uh, she was Wiccan at the time, something I had also uh, dabbled in. And then she got baptized in the Pikes Peak Park Baptist Church while we were married about two years into our marriage. And um, it wasn't a church that we were members of there either, uh, but it was a place that was closest to our house, and we went to listen to doctrine and... Um, you know, encouragement and have some fellowship, which I think is important. I do think fellowship is an extremely important thing. And uh, even though I can be in fellowship, whether it's on top of a mountain or whether it's at a Rastafari circle smoking ganja or whether it's at a Baptist church, I mean, I find fellowship wherever it's presented. So as I said, you know, being... Um, a non-conformist, at least in some aspects of my walk with faith, 
and beliefs in, you know, theism and deities, I uh, have been open and able to explore without a lot of consequence from my fellowship. Um, because I'm very open and honest about the fact that I don't subscribe. I don't subscribe to your church. I don't subscribe to their church. I, I don't subscribe to whatever um, the world presents. But I do find that seeking knowledge is my path. And this is the path of the Gnostics. Um, and that's something that the Catholic Church was not willing to accept. And that's why they considered these people heretics. And many of them were killed. Um, and they continued to rise all throughout history, um, all the way up to the Knights Templar, the Cathars, you know, all of these in France and in uh, Israel. And a lot of the um, uh, inquisitions had to do with these heret heretical groups like the Gnostics, where the Catholics would just try to wipe them out. And one great thing that happened with them is that uh, they knew of their persecution and that their fate was dismal, and they buried their text from the first and second century. So we have a gospel and, and a, a collection of texts from that era and from those followers of Christ uh, that predate the manuscripts that were included in the Catholic um, Bible, in the, uh, you know, the Nicene Creed and and other creeds to follow in the King James, you know, these things that are compiled are manipulated, are incorrect and changed and altered and, and falsified and edited where you don't have a lot of the same books that you would, you know, find in these collections that are, that predate the manuscripts that are included in our common Bible, you know, in the, what we would probably uh, link back to the King James compilation and, and prior to that, the Neocene Creed from the 4th century. And so, you know, these um, uh, these collections, these Gnostic collections that were found in Egypt in, um, near a town called Nakamadi, uh, in a little cave that two brothers had found in like the early 40s, um, these, you know, came about and were released. And uh, I, guess, I guess they're in um, the museum in Cairo right now. Uh, but in like 1946, they started being examined when these two brothers finally uh, sold them off to an antiquities dealer. And so after that, they made it to their rightful place now in the museum, and they can be um, they can be researched or you know examined by others now. So point of that is, and how this relates back to men's rights and feminism, and these topics that are on my mind is. You see, um, you know, a lot of history that was erased by the Catholics and by Rome, you know, and when I talk about Catholics, I'm not talking about the Universal Church of Christ. I'm talking about the government of Rome. And, uh, you know, that's what the Catholic Church is. Um, when the Bible refers to the Catholic Church and Jesus refers to the Catholic Church, or at least Paul does in reference to Jesus's church, uh, it's the universal church of God, not a foundation of politics and wealth, but of a fellowship, of a common fellowship, um, which is kind of how the Gnostics rolled. You know, they, they uh, gathered together, they had fellowship, but, you know, they weren't restricted by texts and 
traditions, they followed the path of knowledge, which is what their sect or, you know, uh, belief system was named after, Gnosis. And so uh, what came out of those books, out of that collection of the Nagamati cave, was the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Gospel of Mary and some of the other texts seem to indicate that Mary, possibly Mary Magdalene, was Jesus's wife, but most certainly one of the more revered apostles, where he revealed things to her that he didn't reveal to his other apostles, and then she would deliver these things to them while he was still alive, would, you know, take his words and deliver them. And um, instead of it being Peter or, you know, one of the others, you know, Peter really uh, probably thought he was the one that should be delivering it and others um, you know were probably a little upset by their cultural beliefs that a woman would be appointed in such a place a rightful place of being next to Jesus or being by his side or being one of his chosen and so in the gospel of Thomas um, and I'd have to point it out and, and I'll probably write an article about this and post it on steam it um, but, you know, in the Gospel of Thomas, it, it looks like what was in there was not what uh, shows up now. It looks like it was edited. And, you know, it looks like something was scratched out and, and replaced. And it looks like what um, I think as Peter is saying, and according to these um, in this Gospel of Thomas, is that uh, why would Mary be in such a position? She does not deserve life. In, in some sort of a context, and I'm paraphrasing that. But that's the cultural, you know, things that upset the Catholics and others about the Gnostic Church is that they would reveal these things and that they would preserve these teachings and that they would present these teachings. And that's why a lot of them were killed off, at least in the, you know, 4th, 5th, and 6th century. But then also later on, too, um, probably in relation to that, but also that the Gnostics um, broke tradition and also um, revealed knowledge that the Catholic Church tried to lock away and hide. So the Gnostics are a very fascinating thing. So for me, and, and I, I just want to make it clear that I really take to that, that, you know, it, and it makes sense to me that Mary would be chosen by Jesus. You know, the um, context that we can see that, you know, you have to read between the lines, looks as if though she's uh, very close to Jesus, you know, anointing him with the very expensive oil and just, you know, you know, waiting by his tomb and just being very um, attentive to him and him responding favorably. Now, there's a lot of context missing in if we combine the Catholic text with the Gnostic text, we see that. But, you know, I, I do have a reverence for um, this Gnostic teaching of a, uh, you know, multi-dimensional God with both feminine and male qualities. And, you know, in, in uh, Catholic teachings and Islamic teachings and other teachings, you know, that doesn't seem to present itself very well, that God has a both male and female aspect. Um, but he does, in, in my opinion, that makes a lot of sense how not only was man made in God's image, but also woman was too. And I believe God 
probably, at least whatever creator it is that we are referring to, and there's a lot of debate about that even in Gnosticism, um, you know, that that creator um, had both aspects, and that's why we were created in his image. And that's why, you know, in the Bible it talks about man will uh, leave his mother and father and woman will leave her mother and father and the two will become twain. You know, they'll become one. And, you know, it's that yin and yang theory that men and women depend on each other to become one. And uh, without the other, we're only half. And so, you know, I think that unity really completes the circle. Um, and so I re revere in, you know, recent political and in uh, recent social history uh, with like women's suffrage and the whole women's movement and first wave feminism, I adore it. I think it's amazing that, you know, these people stood up and, and fought hard and won their rights to vote, to work, to whatever, to wear pants for crying out loud, whatever. I think that's wonderful. Um, and I fully support it. But the new, new ideas of feminism and what they call second or third wave feminism, I would call it third wave. I think there's been, you know, really three waves of feminism. Uh, certainly in American history, we had women's suffrage. Then we had a 1950s type of uh, feminism, you know, uh, oh, what, what's her name? Uh, Molly the Riveter or whatever her name is. Uh, uh, oh, geez, now I can't remember her name. But the uh, you know poster for World War II of the woman at the uh, you know airplane manufacturing plant for the war. And uh, gosh, why can't I remember her name now? Escapes me. Um, but there was that feminism. So you had the women's right to vote. Then you had the women's right to work. But now with third wave feminism. What you've got is man shaming and uh, segregation and women, you know, really trying to put men in their place. And uh, I saw something in regards to Aaron Ra. And so I'm glad he opened this door. He came to my channel on YouTube. He opened this door about evolution, but it led into many other things. And uh, I looked him up through this uh, topic of feminism just to see why he was playing these weird word games with me which, you know, it panned out to be that's not just me he plays these word games with. And it's not just with Christians he plays these word games with. He has the same kind of arguments with other atheists, but about topics like feminism. So Skeptor criticized him quite a bit. Skeptor on YouTube, I think it's S-K-E-P-T-O-R-R, -R, Skeptor. Uh, look him up, and he's got a video titled Aaron Ra, the Religious Atheist. And he's religious about feminism, and he's dogmatic, and he has a lot of cognitive dissonance that he won't change his mind on these topics, and he's he gets mad. He gets downright mad and starts shouting down other atheist uh, colleagues of his when they question him on feminism. But um, Skeptor in that video about Aaron Ra being the religious atheist shows a video from the 1970s from the UK, and this video shows uh, these third wave feminists and they had a huge movement, you know, hundreds of people would show up at their music events and they would have these little, uh, you know, uh, what they call a crash, more of a, a commune uh, where 
women would gather in these communes to separate themselves from men, and thousands would go, you know, and be a part of these communes, and they had rules. They were, you know, kind of uh, doing these ad hoc rules on the fly, but uh, one of them was that if a woman had a male son, that the male son was not allowed to be in the so-called creche, that uh, they were encouraged to give their sons away, and uh I don't know about the abortion topic, that didn't come up in the video, but they certainly didn't want men or male children uh, in these communes. And, you know, their reasoning was is that these were, you know, future men and so-called future oppressors and that they had no place in these communities. And then, you know, you'd get up and, uh, you know, they'd, they'd have their like, I don't know what we would call in Mormonism, like a testimony, and they would get up and they would, you know, preach, basically, and give their testimonies about feminism, and they would get up, basically, and, and with their books, they would hand out flyers with these same notions, and that men were the enemy, and they would resent women who would, you know, be a part of these feminist movements, but then at night, go home to men, and, you know, it, it was a very, uh, it's still like that, I mean, you look at these LGBT communities, you know, and the only men that they accept are feminized men and, and homosexual men. And, and if they're in any way conservative or uh, patriarchal, patriarchal, huh, excuse my um, speech, uh, can't pronounce things tonight, patriarchal, <laughs> uh, like Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, they shun that as well. No, no masculinity. Uh, so they accept a few males, but for the most part, it's a female-only type of movement. And, you know, you, you look at this in a lot of different liberal or progressive movements, and especially in the cannabis movement, and you don't see a lot of masculinity there. You see a lot of femininity and, and uh, a lot of um, segregation. And so... Even with the men that are in these movements, you see that they're, they're effeminate and betas and very few alphas are in that movement. And certainly very few conservatives as well. But, uh, that's, you know, bled in from this third wave feminism that really started in the late 60s and early 70s. And if I could, uh, uh, well, I, I, I think I can find that documentary, the full documentary, but if not, I'll post a link to Skeptor's video. And then I'll show a lot of these um, pamphlets and a lot of these um, documents and flyers, as well as uh, videos of these movements from feminism in the 70s, where they shamed men and they preached segregation of the two sexes, the two genders. And uh, that's bled into today. And so even in subtle ways, even, you know, me and my wife or me and my mother, you know, I, I see that with, with females in my life. Now, not all of them, but it comes up in weird ways in many different situations where, you know, if you show too much alpha, too much masculinity, it's like uh, offensive or, you know, it's like um, oppressive. And could be little things like finances. It could be little things like... Um, you know, working, uh, holding a job while the, you know, uh, wife or the other spouse stays at home with the children and does housework, uh, things like that, you know. Um, the way that men and women were built, 
from day one. You know, I mean, men are stronger. Men are, you know, they persevere in work. They work longer hours. You know, even in today's society, they work much longer hours. They they work much more dangerous jobs. And they, you know, are the ones that die. Like 20% of, I mean, uh, 80% of work-related injuries and death comes from the male population. Only 20% comes from the female population because men work dangerous jobs and females typically don't. So that's how men were built. And, um, you know, women were built to bear children and to be domestic managers. You know, I'm not going to call it a housewife because that would be offensive, but domestic managers, managing the house. But that's sexist now. And, you know, playing gender roles is sexist. And now they're coming up, uh, these liberals and these third-wave feminists are coming up with this idea that uh, gender is a social construct, that XY and XX chromosomes mean nothing, that gender is now a social construct. Um, so it's, it's just bizarre the way that the world is working, and the Western world especially. Like, you see the decline in births now. Very few people are wanting to have children. Very few people are, you know, engaging in marriage. And when they do, there's a huge divorce rate now. Uh, you know, back in the 50s, the, the divorce rate was less than half of what it is now. And divorces are on the rise. Um, uh, births are on decline. And you see populations, you know, getting older and uh, very few youth are entering the workforce. So now they're bringing in Muslim immigrants to all these countries that are declining in population. They say like a 1.13 birth rate is um, irreversible, you know, because for every two adults, having only one child means that the next generation is going to have half as many people in the workforce to take care of this aging population. And that means that the population will start to decline rather than grow as well. So in order to maintain a stable um, population, a lot of these refugees are being welcomed and immigrants are being welcomed. And I think that it's you know beyond just reasons of uh, displacement and war. I think you know there's a bigger agenda here. And, uh, you know, Western culture has become so feminized and marriage has become so hated and traditional values have become so despised that our population is shrinking. And, um, you know, the marriage situation is becoming uh, less desirable. And so now, you know, with populations declining and a disparity in the young and the old population, uh, they're bringing in Muslims um, and other immigrants, but mostly Muslim immigrants and refugees. So, I, I mean, there's a lot of negative aspects of this. Uh, you know, the um, contention and division and segregation is, is one aspect of it. When we're constantly divided, when we're constantly bickering at each other, they do this with race as well, where, you know, the blacks hate the whites, the white hates the blacks. You know, George Soros has, you know, for years, for over 40 years, said that he wants to destroy American culture. This is a quote he gave, 
um, I think it was in Newsweek about 30 years ago, saying that he hates the American culture and he wishes to destroy it. Paraphrase. And I'll also put that in my article at Veracity Life. Um, so, you know, he has done this in other cultures. Like, he'll fund neo-Nazis in the Ukraine, but he'll fund Black Lives Matter in the United States. And what he's doing is reducing the strength of the culture and weakening people so they're fighting with each other. And when the culture declines, the currency declines in value. And then when the currency declines, he buys up the currency at a discounted rate and he uh, sells it at a profit. So that to me says that, you know, um, this is artificial. This isn't natural. He's manipulating society. You'll see these Antifa people that are getting paid by him. And, you know, they, he has this um, open society movement. And he's, he just gave $15 billion of his, like, $18 billion in wealth that he has. He gave, like, over 90% of his wealth to this open societies thing. And um, it's a umbrella group that funds... Black Lives Matter, Antifa, uh, Media Matters, and a bunch of other um, groups underneath. I think there's 116 total groups. And, you know, they're using media, they're using um, communication and propaganda to disrupt society. And he, he does this, he's, he's sly like, he, he's crazy like a fox. Let's put it that way. He knows what he's doing. It looks like well, why would you do that? Why would you spend billions of dollars to disrupt the society? Um, you know, you got to understand where he's coming from. He was a Nazi. You know, he uh, was adopted by a, a Nazi. Um, he was a Jew, but, you know, he got forged papers because his dad was wealthy. And a friend of theirs adopted him and claimed him as his son with a Christian name so that he wasn't associated with Jewish people, right? And... While all of his, you know, neighbors and friends were getting gassed, he was out there confiscating their property with this Nazi um, leader, this, you know, Nazi sympathizer anyway. And they would go in and they would, you know, lead the people out to the trains and then go in and confiscate their property. And at age 14, George Soros did that. And, uh, you know, he's a Hungarian uh, Jew, but... You know, he became a Nazi at age 14, a bona fide Nazi that took the property of soon-to-be-gassed Jews. So this is, you know, where he comes from. This is his origins. And he has always hated America, and he's always said as much. He hates America. And when he talks about his time as a Nazi, uh, he did this on... Uh, uh, 20, 20 minutes, oh, 60 minutes, I'm sorry. He did this uh, in an interview uh, with 60 Minutes, and he, they asked him, hey, do you have any regrets? Do you have any guilt for what you did when you were a Nazi? And he's like, no, 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 not at all. You know, I mean, he has no regrets, no remorse. But um, this is the same thing with way, when he destroys societies, when he attempts to use his financial and media leverage to reduce and divide a country to destroy their culture, but he does it not only because he has so much hate and so much disdain for humanity, and especially for Western culture and the United States, but he also does it uh, to gain money. 
you know, when he reduces their culture and their, uh, and the people are fighting and there's riots in the streets, then their currency takes a dive in value and he buys it up. He holds on to it for six months, two years, five years, whatever. Uh, he holds all of his assets, you know, you know, basically in digital format on these stock exchanges. And when it, um, after he disrupts it, he moves on, leaves it alone, lets them rebuild. After they get stronger again, he goes and sells the currency and makes billions of dollars. That's how he's gained all of his wealth. That's where George Soros's wealth has came from. And so I don't think this third wave feminism, uh, you know, it's very common man-hating segregated third wave feminism is natural. But being that it's part of popular culture and it's what we see on media quite a bit, and we see, you know, women, you know, taking the role of men and being all, you know, you know, buff and, you know, uh, assertive and alpha and, you know, uh, shaming men and taking over roles like, you know, uh, you know, inserting themselves in roles that they wouldn't naturally adapt to, to prove that they can be just as good as men and just as successful as men and, you know, do all the things men do. And so women are becoming men and men are becoming women because you look at the promotion of homosexuality in Hollywood, right? These, these effeminate men, these, these gay, you know, submissive men. And, uh, you know, they only really make up about 4% of society in the United States. And that's the entire LGBT culture, lesbians and homosexuals, as well as transvestites and the rest. 4% of the United States are these people, right? 2% of them are gay male. But if you watch um, sitcoms or if you watch Hollywood movies, you would think 30 to maybe 50% of society were, were homosexuals or, you know, these not, uh what do they call them, non-binary, gender-fluid people or whatever, you would think that there's a greater amount of society that's gay. And they want to make it look, you know, attractive, like the new fad, the, the way to be on the in crowd. And, you know, they're, they're promoting it. They're, they're propagandizing um, culture with this stuff. And so many sitcoms have a gay fella in there, you know, but it's way more than what's represented in society. You know, it's not 4% of sitcoms have a gay person in them, you know, and it's not 4% of movies have a gay person in them. It's like 30 to 50% of movie of, you know, Hollywood produced media showing a star in the show as being a homosexual. Um, and it's, it's becoming more and more common. And so I think that, you know, that society has really been disrupted, and I think it's in a negative way. My biggest problem with the homosexuality thing is not that the gay people are gay. That's fine with me, and I've had friends that are gay, and I've had a lot of respect for them. Uh, some of them drive me nuts, and they make me ill. And, like, I, I was a homeless kid in Seattle when I was 17, 18, 19. And we lived in a abandoned house, what we called a squat and there was like four gay guys there, a couple of lesbian gals, and then a bunch of punkers like me, and you know, just whatever, just a bunch of, you know, uh, street rats. 
And I had good relationships with three of the four gay guys. Uh, but one of them, this guy, Mama Chris, right, that's what he wanted to be called. That's what everybody called him, Mama Chris, was so gross and so blatantly gay. Like everything he did, everything he was, it, it was conversations, gay this, gay that, you know, uh, crude and just, you know, obnoxious um, conversations about gay sex and stuff. And it was all about his, you know, his persona was gay. That was it. That was the only thing he had in his persona. He didn't, you know, have any other qualities about him. That's not any, nothing else. He didn't present anything else. It was only gay. And people that are heterosexual, that produce, that, that's what they produce. That's their uh, persona. That's the only thing that they um, display is their sexuality. You know, I did this with this gal, you know, locker room talk constantly. They annoy me just as much. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have a problem with homosexuality in general. I have a problem with the cultural um, propaganda that we're getting from Hollywood just because it's unnatural and it's disruptive and it's causing a lot of tension and it's dividing our country. That's my only real problem with the culture. But the problem with the specific gay lifestyle that I have is a health issue. You know, something I don't want my kids to deal with. I don't want my friends to deal with. People that I care about. I don't even want my worst enemy to deal with it. And it has to do with AIDS and HIV. And this 2% of the population, gay males, just 2% of the population are responsible for 58% of all new AIDS, HIV cases. Um, HIV, AIDS, I'm guessing, uh, getting that backwards, HIV, then AIDS or whatever. But the HIV, AIDS crisis is coming from this 2% of the population. Not, not uh, intravenous drug users. They make up, you know, less than a, uh, two digits of percentage. It's like 8% or something are these uh, IV drug users that are spreading AIDS. Um, heterosexuals have a very small amount of HIV contracted contractions. Uh, bisexuals are usually how straight people get AIDS. You know, they date somebody who's bisexual, who got AIDS from their gay partner, and then gave it to them. You know, females dating a bisexual male, because it's usually males, male homosexuals that get AIDS. They usually spread it to their, you know, straight female companions, and then their straight female companions give it to another straight male uh, back and forth like that, that's the pretty common uh, route that heterosexuals get AIDS, at least according to studies. And I'll put a couple of those links in the um, article as well that I'll be displaying at veracitylife.com. So it's that I would like, as a father and as a somebody who adores humanity and wants to see good for the world, you know, my problem is AIDS and promiscuous behavior that causes these things in the gay community. And so as an ordained minister, you know, I got it from uh, Universal Life Church. I got my ordination from the Universal Life Church. I'm an ordained minister. I'm legally allowed to perform marriages and certify marriages. And uh, I've told my gay friends, and I've announced it on my websites, that if you have a marriage that you're having, you know, in a... Um, gay situation, I would officiate that as a minister. 
I would have no problem being uh, the minister to say your vows and officiate the marriage with you. And, and in fact, I would, I would encourage it. I think that marriage saves uh, a lot of things in this world from destruction, be it the lives of children. You know, I see that being a major problem, uh, but also, you know, this promiscuity in the uh, STD issue with HIV and AIDS and others. Um, marriage saves a lot of people a lot of grief. Um, and that's another thing with, like, this third-wave feminism that I'm, I'm seeing and that I'm, you know, seeing a problem with is you see single parent households, usually single mothers with kids, and not always, but often. Um, the kids grow up lacking something, and they find it in strong alpha males, and usually they find uh, problems. They find gang members, they find um, abusers and users that are alpha and take advantage of their... Um, undeveloped uh, personas or undeveloped um, emotional status. And they, you know, these alpha males take advantage of them and ruin their lives, whether it be a young male looking up to a gang member or whether it be a young female looking up to a um, man, uh, a lover to... Uh, fill a gap of the father figure. And um, this was what happened with my mother. My mother lost her father at age 11, married my father when she was still like, well, she got together with him when she was still a teenager. I think they got together when she was like 17 or 18. And they got married a couple years later um, when I was like eight months old in 1977. They, I think they got together when, uh, I think it was like 1975, she was still a teenager. And then in 1977, I was a young boy, uh, eight months old, and they got married. But my dad was far older than my mother. And the same thing with my wife's mother. You know, she lost her dad at age three, committed suicide. Uh, my mom's dad had a heart attack and died at age, uh, when she was age 11. He was young. He was like in his late 50s um, or early 50s. I think he might have been about 55, actually. He was pretty young. Uh, and my wife's mother's uh, grandfather, I mean, my wife's grandfather, my wife's mother's father, killed himself, and she was age three at that point. And then my wife's father was 18 years older than my wife's mother. And uh, they, you know, they're... I, I don't know what it is, uh, you know, that they needed a father figure... And, you know, it was just that an older man took interest in him. They were prob probably fairly incompatible. And they fought a lot, both um, my mother and father and her mother and father. And they had, um, I, I, I don't know, you know, it was a struggle of a relationship and, you know, on many levels. But I think that that's the gap that it leaves when you're raised by a single mother and not having a father in your life, is that you're looking for a stronger alpha male to guide you. You're looking for that, and you'll accept substandard relationships to fill that gap. And I think I went through that a little bit too. My dad spent a lot of time in and out of jail, being separated from my mother, um, 
being on, in another state on business. I mean, I really saw my dad when I was a kid. And, you know, I went for stronger alpha males, gang members, skaters that, you know, were kind of involved in drugs and other things. And it filled a gap for me. You know, it kind of gave me guidance and, you know, lessons on what it was to be a man and, you know, to um, understand things that I had missed out on having a father. I saw this in my dad's uh, marriage to his first wife and the kids that he produced in that marriage. And they, some of them, most of them went for older men as well uh, to kind of play a role of father figure, I think, in a lot of ways. And it, you know, ended up in some disturbing situations and some broken relationships, you know, because the relationship didn't meet their expectations. It met... Um, you know, it filled a gap, it filled a void, but it didn't really meet their emotional expectations. And so there have been some divorces and there have been some, you know, issues and stuff. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I see, uh, I, I don't know, I see this as just being a cultural issue that I have a problem with and I wanted to discuss it on this show. So if you're interested in having a conversation about this in the future, I will open this up to discussion uh, when I figure out how to host people and bring people in. But it uh, looks like I've gone about 45 minutes on this one. I've said pretty much all I have to say. Uh, but I, I, I think as a culture, we need to work on these things. We need to you know, figure out what gender means in this, in this world and what relationships mean and what marriage means because I think we've lost track of it and I think it's created a hostile environment for people. And I think that our culture and our countries, you know, our, our uh, economies all suffer because of it. I really do. And I think there's a reason for it. Like I said, I think that this is designed. I think this is guided by higher powers, by, by wealthy people, by media, by Hollywood. I think that it's been guided. But we need to take back the narrative in society and we need to figure out how to do that and we need to figure out what it means to us why these things are important and i think there's a lot of reasons why it is anyway thanks for tuning in again this is ryan from disruptarian.com and veracitylife.com i actually should have said that we have two websites that i want to associate with this podcast i'm not entirely sure if i'm going to settle on one or the other yet but uh, veracitylife.com will be one, and uh, disruptarian.com will be the other, probably, until I decide what we're going to do with this show. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Again, this is Ryan. Peace out.